Did MacArthur deal with the uh, prodigal son? Yes. Was it fabulous? Yes. Was it good? Yeah. She went. He, uh, John MacArthur was at Criswell College on Friday, and he met with the faculty. Uh, had a private meeting with the faculty. We had uh, a dessert, and it was a great time. It really was. It was a very special time. He uh, just bared his heart and uh, just got to know him as a human being, so it was sort of fun. Okay, let's take our Bibles, and uh, we're only in our, what, about our 15th week in uh, Luke? 20th week? But we're a third of the way through, so we're going to look at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And today we're going to cover verses 18 through 35. That's Luke 7, verses 18 through 35. And I'll give you a little bit of a background of what we did last week, and I'll show you how we're going to break this section down. Uh, last week, we saw that Jesus, in verses 1 through 17, Jesus healed a centurion servant by long distance, and he raised a widow's son from the dead. Now, in each case, Jesus does something out of the mainstream, other than the miracle. Of course, the miracles were fabulous. But by healing the centurion's servant, he is acting on behalf of a Roman soldier whom the Jews considered as occupiers of Palestine. They didn't want to have anything to do with Roman soldiers. And here Jesus is acting on behalf of a Roman soldier's request. And not only that, he proclaims a soldier to have greater faith than any faith that he's ever seen in Israel. That's really out of the mainstream. That would cause an eyebrow to rise. Then he touches the coffin of a dead person, thereby making himself, according to Jewish tradition, ceremonially unclean for seven days. So on the one hand, what he does is great. It's, it's a miracle. On the other hand, it's offensive to those around him. Thus, there's an incongruency in what Jesus does. And this is the problem. The problem with Jesus is not that he's a miracle healer, not even that he claims to be the Messiah. They're willing to uh, examine that claim. But if he's the Messiah, what's he doing? These, why is he doing these other things? Why is he rubbing shoulders with Romans? He should be overthrowing the Roman Empire, not proclaiming them to be people of great faith. Why is he touching dead people? And becoming ceremonially unclean, he should be pure as Messiah. So that's the incongruency. You understand that? So when we get to this section, that'll help you understand this section a little better. Now today, we're going to divide verses 18 through 35 this way. Part 1, we're going to call it 18 through 23. 18 through 23. And this is John questions Jesus' Messiahship. John the Baptist questions Jesus' Messiahship. Verses 24 through 28, Jesus evaluates John's ministry. Okay? Then verses 29 and 30, we have an interjection where Luke makes a comment, and we'll see what he says about that. Just call that an interjection right now. And then verses 31 through 35, uh, Jesus draws his conclusion, and he gives us the lesson that he wants us to learn. So let's pick up in this first section. Let's look at verse 18. Then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, 
reported to him, now listen to this, his disciples reported to him concerning all these things. What things? That Jesus touches dead people, that Jesus eats with sinners, that Jesus rubs shoulders with Romans, with Gentiles. So they report the positive and the negative things to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus. After he gets that report, he sends two disciples to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Obviously, John has some doubts. Now, what causes John to have these doubts? I think that you need to understand the context. John's rotting away in prison. You know why he's in prison? He's in prison because he has taken a stand for righteousness and he's spoken against Herod having a relationship with his sister-in-law. He's not going to let people get away with unrighteousness. He's going to call sin what it is, sin. And he doesn't care if it's a king. He'll confront the king. This Jewish collaborator with the Romans, he'll put that man to task. And as a result, the man throws him in prison and he's going to eventually have his head. So here's John in prison, and what's Jesus doing? Just the opposite. He's rubbing shoulders with sinners. He's eating meals with sinners. He's calling Romans, saying Romans have great faith. What's going on? He's drawing crowds. People are flocking to him, but John's away in prison. So John's beginning to have doubts about Jesus' messiahship, and he says, are you the one, or should we be looking for another? Now look at verse 20. Verse 20. And when the men, that's John's disciples, had come to him, that's Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one? Or should we look for someone else? Look for another. Jesus doesn't say a word. They ask the question, and he just looks at him, and then guess what he does? Watch. And that very hour, he cured many infirmities. They said, are you the one? And guess what he started doing? Just started curing people. Curing many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. Now, this is something these guys had never seen. John the Baptist did not have a miracle ministry. So they come saying, John wants to know whether you're the Messiah or not. And Jesus starts healing all these people. Casting demons out, causing the blind to see, all these kinds of things. And uh, I don't know how you describe a thing like this. Because if you look at the end of verse 21, it says, And many blind he gave sight. Uh, what did he do? I mean, many blind. He didn't just heal a blind person. Uh, once one blind person got healed, the word got out, and guess what? Every blind person in the whole region flocked. What did, how, did, how did he do this? Did he say, okay, all the blind lined up here? Uh, I want the demon-possessed lined up here? Uh, how did he do this thing? You know, I've always wondered about the, uh, the logistics of an, an event, of an event like this. Is it like a Benny Hinn crusade? You know? <laughs> and all these people are marginal people. People on the margins. These are the, the poor people and the people that can't go into the temple 
And one right after another, Jesus is setting them free, just like that. And these guys who have asked the question, are you the Messiah, are just standing there looking. And they're going to have to go back to their boss, you know, and they're going to have to give him a report that the one you're questioning, you just can't believe the things that are happening here. So then Jesus speaks after he does all this. I don't know how long that took. That could have taken a couple hours. I don't know. Then he answered and he said to them, Now go tell John the things that you have seen, meaning with your own eyes. By the way, guess what? There, were only, there weren't only physical eyes open that day. Here's John the Baptist's disciples, and guess what? Their eyes were open too. To the reality. So he says, Go tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. That the blind see. The lame walk. Look, these are the things that happened that day. If you want to know who the infirmed were, he's going to give you the list. The blind see. The lame walk. Lepers are clean. Deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And uh, when Jesus mentions all these things, not only did they see them with their own eyes, but being good students of the Bible, they knew that these are the things that the Old Testament prophets predicted would happen when the kingdom of God came upon the earth. You've been with us from the beginning. We've gone back to the Old Testament prophets. And I've shown you passage after passage. For example, I'm going to read just one to you. Uh, you might want to mark it in your Bible. It's one we haven't looked at before. Don't, you don't need to turn there, but it's Isaiah 29:18. He says, in that day... This is what Isaiah the prophet says. In that day the deaf shall hear the word of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Well, when you look at Luke 7 and verse 22, what Jesus is describing is the same thing the Old Testament prophet said would happen when the kingdom of God arrived on earth and the Messiah came. So basically what Jesus is saying, go tell John that the prophetic signs are indeed happening. John will have to decide for himself whether I am the Messiah. <coughs> and so I'm sure they, they go back and they tell John that. We don't have that report, but I'm certain that they do. Now, when John receives that report, do you think he rejoices or do you think he's concerned? Because... <coughs> The only answer he gets is the same thing he already knows. Jesus is rubbing shoulders with the poor people, and Jesus is healing the people on the margins. So I don't know whether John's happy over this or whether he's concerned over this. But anyway, that's important that you see that. Now, look in verse 23. Jesus says to the people, those two guys who are going to go back and give the report, and tell John this. Watch this. Talk about a cutting message for John the Baptist? Tell John about the miracles and then tell John about this. Say to John, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. <coughs> John, are you offended? <coughs> Look, this is a beatitude. Blessed. And it's a beatitude for one person in this case. It applies to us, but it's for one person, and it's John. Go tell John 
The person who's blessed is the person who's not offended over what I do. That word offended means who doesn't stumble. Remember back in chapter 2, Simeon said Jesus is a stone. He's either a stepping stone who you can step on and it will rise, raise you higher, or he is a stumbling stone over whom you fall because you're offended of him. If you're offended of him, woe to you. If you're not offended of him, blessed are you. So John's got to decide whether he's going to be happy with this message that he receives or whether he's going to remain offended by the message that he receives. So here's the question. Are you offended by the Jesus that you've seen in the book of Luke? Does that offend you? Ah, I don't believe. Some of those things Street says up there, they're pretty far out. I don't know if my Jesus would do that. Well, I know this Jesus did that. Amen. So you have to decide whether you're offended at this Jesus or whether you're happy over this Jesus. If something like this offends, can you imagine what his crucifixion will do? <clears throat> How offensive that will be to the people and to his disciples? Because not only does Messiah not rub shoulders with the marginal people, Messiah doesn't die, and guess what? This one does. If this is going to offend you, his death will offend you even more. It's an offensive thing. The cross is an offense to these people. So now look at verse 24. We come to this next section, and it says, When the messengers of John had departed, this is very interesting, Jesus begins to evaluate John's ministry. Look, verse 24. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. And he asked a question. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Meaning when John was out there preaching, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And the answer is, no. No one would go all the way out into the desert to see some reed being <laughs> shaken by the wind. <laughs> you can see a reed shaking by the wind here in Dallas, the way the wind blows, can't you? Put up my trees are shaking like that. I don't have to go to the desert to see that. That's too common a thing to drive me out to the desert. Is that what you expected when you John came on the scene? A reed shaking in the wind? The answer is no. You now look at the next verse, verse 25. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? And the answer is, no. No one goes out into the desert to see somebody dressed up in a tuxedo. I see people dressed up in a tuxedo down here in Dallas. I don't have to go out in the desert to see that. Now, that would be strange, a man walking across the desert in a tuxedo. But it's not enough to get me out there to go see it. The rest of verse 25. Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled live in luxury are in king's courts. And John is in the king's prison, not in the king's court. Look at verse 26. Third question. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Now that's worth going out and seeing. People will go 
for miles to see someone who claims to be speaking on behalf of God. Billy Graham at his height, when he was preaching across the country, people would come hundreds of miles just to hear that man speak because he claimed to be a spokesman for God. People will go to hear God's spokesman speak. Is that what you went out for? Yes. But he wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just any prophet. He says he was more than a prophet in verse 26. This is he, verse 27 says. Jesus quotes this. This is he of whom it's written. Not just an ordinary prophet, but behold, I send my messenger before my face. God says that in Isaiah and also in Malachi. Who will prepare your way before you? So this is a quote out of Malachi 3.1, and it describes God's end-time prophet who is going to go and prepare the way for God's arrival and the setting up of the kingdom of God. He's going to go out and he's going to announce that the kingdom is just about to break in and all the people need to prepare for the arrival of the kingdom. So while John doubts Jesus' role as Messiah, Jesus elevates John. John says, are you the Messiah? should be hungry for someone else. That's John's attitude toward Jesus. Jesus' attitude toward John. He's not only a prophet, he's greater. <coughs> so Jesus has a very high opinion of John, even though John is questioning Jesus at this time, which is sort of interesting, isn't it? Now look at verse 28. For I say to you, look with this, this is still his evaluation of John. For I say to you, among those born of woman, women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Can you imagine Jesus making that statement about you? I mean, what a, what a statement that is. The greatest prophet ever born of a woman is John the Baptist. Now that, if the statement ended there, that would be a great statement in and of itself. But Jesus turns everything upside down. And look what he says in verse 28. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is more important than John. He who is least, and don't forget that word least, because that's what this whole passage is about. He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Now Jesus is making a comparison. Not a comparison with, between himself and John. He's making a comparison between people who live under the old covenant and the old dispensation and those who are going to live under the new order. Jesus is bringing about a new day. A new day is dawning. And Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom of God. And he says, he who is least in the kingdom of God, in this new age that's dawning, is far greater than than John the Baptist. Now listen again. He who is least in this new age, this dawning kingdom of God, is greater than John the Baptist. Who's the least in the kingdom of God? Who's the least? The least. Who's the least in the kingdom of God? The poor, the marginal, the lepers, the sick. Everybody whose society looks upon as least the widows, 
the unclean, the tax collectors, everybody that society in Jesus' day marginalized and put down here and said, unclean, sinner, sinner, that person, if they get into the kingdom of God, is greater than John the Baptist. So it's very important that you understand this. These are the little people who receive the benefits of the kingdom of God, who receive the touch from Jesus' hand. And God's kingdom, the least, will be greater than the most important prophet in the past era. That's very important that you get that, because that's what this is all going to settle on. In fact, look over at chapter 16 just for a moment. <coughs> Luke chapter 16. <clears throat> and look down at verse 16. Look what it says. The law and the prophets were until John. Do you see that? That's the old era. That's the old dispensation. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone is pressing into it. Everyone? Even tax collectors? Even sinners? Even prostitutes? Yeah. Anyone who reorients their life toward the kingdom of God, God accepts anybody into that particular kingdom. So what we see is he accepts everybody into the kingdom. John represents an old age. Jesus represents the new age. John represents the old dispensation. Jesus represents the kingdom of God. There's a dawning of a new age, an inauguration of a new age. Okay, now go back to Luke 7. Go look at this next section, verses 29 and 30. Just so you understand what I'm saying is true, Luke decides to put in an interjection just to show you that the, my interpretation is right, and this is how you should interpret it, the reader should interpret it, Luke puts in an interjection here. And look what he says. When all the people heard him, and all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, what in the world does that mean? Luke is saying, who are these least people that are greater than John? I'm talking about even tax collectors. That's exhibit A. That even a tax collector is better than John in the kingdom of God. And notice how it's written. Very interesting. Verse 29 says, The tax collectors justified God or vindicated God. Uh, what does that mean, they vindicated God? Uh, it means that uh, what God's doing is right. Uh, God, because look what it says. They were baptized with the baptism of John. When John the Baptist came preaching on the scene, he said, The kingdom of God's about to break in. It's going to come. He was the preparer. He was preparing the way for the kingdom to come in. And he was saying, if you want to be prepared, guess what you have to do? You have to be baptized. You have to reorient your life toward the kingdom. And guess who did that? Tax collectors. 
They said, we want to reorient our lives toward the kingdom. We want to be in the kingdom. And God said, okay, come on in. And they reoriented their lives toward the kingdom. Very hard passage to understand. Now look at verse 30. But. Now look, at there's the contrast. Here's this least person, the lowliest person, a tax collector, gets into the kingdom of God. He meets the qualifications. He does what John tells him to do, so he's prepared. But the Pharisees and the lawyers did what? Rejected the will of God for themselves, not being baptized by John. So John says, you want to get in the kingdom, you need to be prepared. The, king, the Messiah is coming. You need to be ready. You re need to reorient your life. How do we do it, John? You need to be baptized. Say that the old's gone and we're up with the new. And the tax collector said, that's me. The least, the least in society. That's me. Now the biggest in society. Most important in society. The Pharisees, the holy ones, the pious ones. And who else? <coughs> this is Mel Hassel's favorite verse. <laughs> And the lawyers <laughs> rejected the will of God. <laughs> Instead of reorienting their lives toward the kingdom, they said, we like things just the way they are. So here are the most important people in society. Now, these are not regular lawyers. These are scribes who interpret the Old Testament. Okay, so we need to put a little caveat there. They decided just to rest on their laurels. They said, we have Abraham as our father. Doesn't that qualify us? And John said, well, that qualifies you for the old age. But there's a new day of dawning. And for that, you need to be reoriented. So that's not good enough. You need to submit to this baptism. So a new reality is coming. And this new reality, this new kingdom is based on a new birth. And guess what? It's going to include tax collectors. The very people that you've kept out. It's going to include prostitutes, people that you keep out. It's going to include people like that. It's going to include Gentiles, people that you think are unclean. Okay? And in this kingdom, the last are going to be first. Okay? They'll be greater than anybody in the old dispensation. So Luke wants to explain that. Then look at verse 31. We come to this last section. And the Lord said, now Jesus speaks again, to what shall... I liken the men of this generation, this age, the old age. What are they like? He says, let me tell you what they're like. They're like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another. And they have a saying, a song that they're singing. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. Jesus says, what's this generation like? What's this dispensation like? The people who live in this old dispensation like? They're like a bunch of kids playing in the street. Or they're over in the playground, and they're playing, and they're singing their songs. And, and uh, he's going to make a simile, a comparison here. And... Uh, what they say is, one says, we played the flute, and you didn't dance. Now look at verse 33. For John came neither eating bread or drinking wine, 
And you said, he has a demon. See, they came out, they said, John, uh, how about joining our game? John, we're playing the flute. This is a song that we want you to dance to. Will you dance to it? We want you to act a certain way, John. We're Join our game. Follow our lead. Become part of our crowd. And guess what? John wouldn't have anything to do with it. John says, I'm not here to dance. I'm not here to sing a song or play a game. I'm here to fast and preach. Ooh, that's sort of scary. See? He wouldn't join. Now look at the end of verse 32. We mourned to you, and you didn't weep. Now look at verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They come to Jesus and they said, hey, we don't like the way you act. Why don't you fast every Tuesday and Thursday like the Pharisees? Why don't you mourn and afflict yourselves? Why are you rubbing shoulders with dirty people? Be holy. And Jesus says, I'm not joining that game. I like to go to parties. I like to dance. See, for Jesus, they want him to act a certain way. They want him to follow their lead, you see. And he doesn't follow their lead. John didn't act the way they thought John should act. And guess what? Jesus didn't act the way they thought Jesus should act. And that's what this very difficult passage is saying. So both Jesus and John are condemned for acting a certain way. Because the people wanted them to act like they acted. They wanted them to join their games and Jesus and John refused. And so what did they do? They said, John has a demon. And what did they say about Jesus? Look, a glutton. A wine-bibber. A friend of tax collectors. <laughs> and sinners. So, see, when people don't act the way you do and don't fit your <coughs> profile, what you think they should do, guess what? easiest thing for you to do is just, just label them. That's the way you can dismiss them. <laughs> just label them. Ah, oh, that's a liberal. Ah, oh, that's a wacko. Look at that wacko. Oh, look at who he's hanging around with. You know, he he's there's something just a little. Oh, look at that fanatic. See, when you do that, you can dismiss somebody. And that's what they did. Pretty easy, isn't it? That's how we operate. We like to dismiss people. So look at verse 35. Jesus says, but wisdom is justified by her children. Or wisdom is vindicated by her children. Now what in the world does that mean? Have you seen that statement somewhere before? Look, verse 35, wisdom is justified by her children. Have you seen anything like that before? Look up at verse 29. The tax collectors justify what? God. Do you see that? The tax collectors justify God. Look at verse 35. Wisdom is justified by her children. It's the exact same statement. It's a parallel. Wisdom represents God personified. And the tax collectors in verse 29 are the children in verse 35. So who are the children of God in the kingdom? 
pretty hard passage, isn't it, to try to figure out? The tax collectors vindicated or justified God. God is vindicated by his children who are tax collectors who have reoriented their lives toward the kingdom of God, who have repented of their sins and have reoriented their lives toward the kingdom. And thus, it's people like the tax collectors. The least. Who are greater than John the Baptist or any Pharisee or anybody who thinks that they're important. That's Jesus' upside-down kingdom. Now, what does this tell us? What does this do for us, okay? Well, first of all, I think when we read this passage, we need to make sure that we do not make Jesus in our image. See, that's what they did. They wanted Jesus to fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays and not rub shoulders. If he did that, then he would be accepted. That's an acceptable Jesus. See, we always make God in our image, don't we? We have this tendency to make Jesus in our image. If you say something about God and somebody doesn't like it, they say, well, that's not the God that I serve. <laughs> well, that's really not the issue. We want an American Jesus. We want a free market Jesus. See, we have... <laughs> now, people in Latin America want a communist Jesus. Okay, I'm not just making him an American Jesus. People all over the world make their own Jesus. The black people want a black Jesus. Some people want a different kind of Jesus. And we need to make sure that we follow the Jesus of the Bible because that's the only way we'll have an accurate understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, so let's make certain that we don't do like the Pharisees did. And if Jesus doesn't fit our political profile or our economic profile or what we envision Jesus to be, uh, that we reject the Jesus of the Bible. Because I think there are a lot of people who follow a different Jesus. They say they're following Jesus, they're in our church, but they're not following the Jesus of the Bible. They're following the Jesus of their own making. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that the people who follow this imaginary Jesus are bad people. The Pharisees, by the way, were good people. If you ask who the most respectable people in Jewish society were, you would say the Pharisees, who are very pious, law-keeping people, keeping the law of Moses, and the scribes who interpret the law as carefully as can be. So it's the respectable people, for the most part, who make Jesus in their image. That's why it's a very big danger for us. Actually, poor people have a purer understanding of Jesus than rich people do. It's dangerous. Another little lesson. <clears throat> we need to make certain <clears throat> that, like the Pharisees, we don't cut people out of our lives. See, that was their mistake. Jesus included people in his life, in his ministry, uh, without exclusion. So Jesus dealt with people who look different. We need to deal with people who look different, who speak different, who smell different who have different values. How are you going to reach people if you don't associate with these people and rub shoulders with these people? These are the people that we should be ministering to. Jesus didn't just say hi to them on the street. Jesus ministered to them. Jesus touched, basically, the AIDS person. And he ministered to that person. And he, his love and his grace and his mercy so overwhelmed them that they reoriented their lives toward the kingdom of God. People who were without hope are the people we need to touch. 
with the gospel, which gives them hope to live. So it's very important that we do that. And uh, in the end, I'm convinced. And the pastor talked about those who, in the end, will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? And we dealt with this a little bit last week. And he said, I never knew you. In the end, when we all stand and give an account, the real question is going to be this. What did you do with the least of these, my brethren? Remember I said the key word here was what? Least. Because these least are the people that God loves most. And these are the ones that he is bringing into his kingdom. And he wants to know what we've done to the least of these. He said, if you've not done it to the least of these, you haven't done it to me. Who have you ministered to lately that you would identify as least? You say no one, then you haven't ministered to Jesus. You can be in church, sing the praise song, give your money. That's not how he evaluates ministry. He evaluates his ministry, how we do it to the least. Then he says this, and if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And if you haven't done it to the least, then he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. See, so our lives must be wrapped up with the least. I'm more convinced than ever since going through Luke, those of us who have means, I'm serious about this. Those of us who have means need to have our eyes open just a little bit more. And we need to make an effort to reach out and help and minister to the least in our society. When we do that, we're emulating Jesus. That's when Jesus will say, well done. I want to hear that, don't you? We have the means to do it. We shouldn't expect others to do it. We've got the means to do it, so we should be the ones to do it. Then he'll say, well done, now good and faithful servant. Next week is very interesting because the very next verse is, guess what he's doing? He's dealing with a sinful woman who rubs his hair and his feet with oil. And the Pharisee said, you let that woman touch you? <laughs> and Jesus said, yeah, I did. <laughs> so we'll see how he deals with her next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I hope that this word is spoke to others' hearts as it has mine. Uh, Lord, these are hard sayings when we get to these sayings of Jesus. They are sayings that we read over. We don't. We read about piping and dancing in the street. We don't quite understand how all that fits in until we are able to look at it in context like this. And Lord, now we see it applies to us. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. We don't want to be like the doubters. Help us, Lord, to emulate Jesus and reach out with this wonderful mercy that you poured out on us, undeserving. May we pour it out on other undeserving souls that uh, you bring us in contact with. Lord, we want to honor you and we want to glorify you by touching the least of these. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.